Get ready to enjoy an earful of auditory indulgence as you explore Tom Moon's book, 1,000 Recordings to Hear Before You Die, presented in cooperation with Workman Publishing. What's up, everybody? Welcome to the 1,000 Recordings podcast, episode number 19. I'm your host, Anthony Joseph Landman, and with me, as always, is the scrum trelescent Mitchell Davis. Okay. What's up? What, what does that mean? <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> okay. That's good. Let's let's make up some words. Hey, I, I've got plenty of people in my family that do that all the time, that just, that just make up words where you just like, what does... Is that even a word? You know, especially my, my dad used to do it all the time. Anyway, how, how's it going, man? You doing okay? Yes. Yeah. I'm, yeah. Yeah. I'm good, man. I'm good. How are you? How's your How's your truck? How's the saga of the truck? Oh, they're they're working on it. I, I'm just like I'm just grateful that they found it. You know, putting it back together. You know, it's it's a process dealing with insurance companies and mechanics and you know anybody that that's had to go through that. They know you know what the deal is. So. I'm um, just trying to be patient, but anyway, yeah, it's it's good. It's 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 okay, you know. Yeah, cool, cool, man. Well, I mean, yeah, I'm glad you're getting it back, and I'm I'm glad you're getting it fixed, and and I'm glad you found it. You know, I'm glad yeah, you know you didn't. Like I said last time, you know, it wasn't burned up on blocks, or you know, someone took a big poop in it or something. Yeah, yeah, that that would not <laughs> have been that would have been awful. Yeah. Um, <laughs> so yeah, it could have been worse, I guess. Um, and uh, yeah, so uh, welcome to this week's show, everybody. Um, this week's show brought to you again. This is the second time we've done a Google Hangout. So I've been having these weird problems with Skype where Skype is uh, just crashing. And, uh, you know, open up Skype and then click on Mitch's name or, or click on anything and Skype will crash. And so we're doing a Google Hangout as an alternative. The thing that I think is... Uh, kind of interesting about the Google Hangout is that uh, according to what the Google Hangout says, anybody on Google Plus right now (laughs) that happens to be on that sees that I'm hanging out with Mitch can join the Hangout. Hmm. So I'm I'm a little, you know, I'm just wondering whether some random person is going to pop in uh, (laughs) while we're doing this. But uh, yeah. We'll see. Yeah, that that could be interesting. You you got a lot of people on on Google Plus or or you know I don't get I I, I don't understand Google Plus really or how the system of adding people works mm-hmm. um, because at one point I just started getting people adding me and it, it mm-hmm. just I mean I think I have almost a thousand people now and, wow. and and none of them I I don't know who any of them are. Um, <laughs> <laughs> um, and so, and that's the deal with Google Plus. They can add you. You don't necessarily have to add them, but they yeah, can. You yeah. know, they can add you. Um, so we might be in for some surprises. I don't know. But yeah, that that could be interesting to have somebody just drop in in the middle of yeah of the show. <laughs> you know, oh well, you know, we'll see what happens. Exactly. Yeah. So uh, this week we have uh, a heavy show, man. I have to say. Um, some some heavy heavy pieces. We're gonna start off with uh, the album recorded by Tony Bennett and jazz pianist Bill Evans from 1975. Uh, then we're gonna move on to, like I said, some pretty hefty works of classical music. 
Um, we're going to start with Alban Berg's opera Volzek. Then we're going to move on to Alban Berg's violin concerto. Uh, this is going to be followed by Luciano Berrio's Sinfonia for orchestra and voices. And uh, we're going to finish it with Hector Berlioz's Symphony Fantastique. So, um, <laughs> what did you? What was your overall impression of the stuff this week? Well, um, a, a good mix of of sound as far as classical music is concerned. Um, the one thing, well, there's a couple of things that 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 stood out to me. Um, the the violin concerto that we're going to listen to, like the the the, the first one, uh, just just really loved it. And and the the first one uh, from uh, uh, Symphony Fantastique, uh, very playful. I mean, I mean, we'll get into it, but I mean, just just some great exposure and and the uh, the the first opera I think that that we're going to listen to from uh, I guess it's a uh, Volsic. Is that how you pronounce it? Yeah, yeah. Uh, you know, definitely really dramatic. Kind of kind of wanting to to see what what's going on you know on the stage as you as you hear it you know being presented but definitely some some interesting pieces you know and and obviously you know tony bennett and bill evans i mean you know two very legendary musical figures uh you know an album so good they had to do it twice apparently so right <laughs> right so yeah let's let's get in to the first album uh of tony bennett and bill evans released in 1975 um, and, uh, of course had been familiar with both of these artists, but separate. Um, I had not heard of this album. I didn't know that they did an album together, uh, until I read Tom Moon's book. And, yeah, same, uh, here. same here. Yeah. So I, I've been really familiar with Bill Evans, uh, especially with his moment. My first exposure to him was, um, through, uh, Miles Davis kind of blue. That was the first album I ever heard him on. And, uh, you know, legendary uh, jazz pianist and played with all the greats and uh, and had a had a kind of tragic life, um, you know, which I guess we can talk about if you if you want. Oh, but yeah. uh, and Tony Bennett obviously is a super well known crooner, still kicking, still doing it, still singing, um, and very creative guy. Also paints and all and all kinds of other stuff. Um, so yeah, what, what did what did you think of this album? Um, it was a uh, a great record, all, all of what I listened to. Uh, initially, <clears throat> I was a little surprised about how somber some of it was, uh, but but like a reflective type somber, you know. Uh, and I just I just visualize a, a guy in a bar. Not a lot of people, you know, just looks like, uh, you know, they're trying to shut it down. But he's he's just kind of giving up, you know, what he's gone through to to another bar patron or a bartender and and just being, you know, really, really reflective about his life and and experience. That, that's that's how this this record feels, you know, uh, it's 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 very kind of bluesy, you know, but. But um, almost appreciative, you know, for what he's he's gone through. I mean, in in the sound of what I hear from Tony Bennett's voice, and and even 
you know, Bill's playing, you know. Um, yeah. Yeah, yeah. V- very kind of intimate and, uh, and and like you said, yeah, reflective, introspective kind of tunes. I mean, th- there's, a, there's a couple of tunes on here that are, are a little more uh, swinging and upbeat, but I think for the most part, the tunes are uh, very inward looking and intimate and sometimes, you know, very melancholy. Yeah. Um, which brings us to the first track we're going to listen to some other time. Uh, this is a very kind of sad, melancholy tune. Um, uh, the lyrics, you know, it, it's kind of like um, two people that just can 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 really never seem to quite connect. Yeah, you know, and they get close, and then something uh, something gets in the way, and they they drift apart. And they come back together again and something else gets in the way and they drift apart. And it's a sort of saying, you know, well, we'll, we'll be together some other time, you know. Mm-hmm. Yeah. 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 And that, that happens. I mean, you know, even with a, a medium like uh, Facebook or, or where you can just tie with people on the Internet and, and that that kind of thing. There are some people in your life that you, you always, you know you consider them, you know, really close friends or whatever, but you just can't sit down, you know, long enough, you know, to, to catch back up because either you're just really busy or, or, or things are just, you know, not right as far as schedules. And, and, you know, it's always like, well, you know, you know, maybe we can try to do this some other day. You know, we, you know, we both are, you know, we got families or we got work or, and it, and it, that kind of thing goes on year after year after year. And the next thing you know, you know, it, it winds up being too late for whatever reason to hook up. And that, yeah, it's, it happens, you know? Mm-hmm. Yeah. And, and, and I, I think this is just a great way of uh, kind of showing that, that circumstance and, and the, the chemistry between the two of them, um, Bill Evans and, and Tony Bennett is really, really great. I mean, oh yeah, you know they they were just seemingly both very, you know, at the top of their game, I guess. You know, and I mean, like we, you were just talking about, even Tony Bennett is still going. I mean, he's still recording. You know, uh, he's just amazing. And um, but at this at this point, it just seemed like they were both just so ready for this record, and it was just a very good mix of what they brought to the table the the two of them so oh yeah definitely i mean uh bill evans piano playing and his his voicings of chords and his phrasing and all this stuff is just uh it's just magic you know what what he can do um so uh yeah this this tune this might be a little cheesy um but this tune kind of reminded me of uh when harry met sally yeah, you know, and, and uh, I agree. It, like it would, this tune would be right at home in that movie. I mean, in that movie, you, you know, in, in a lot of '80s movies and even into the '90s, you know, there was always that montage. You know, <laughs> yeah. they had the montages, <laughs> and I, th- I, I know there was at least one montage in uh, when Harry met Sally. You know, of where they're going about their lives and they meet up and and drift apart again and and meet up and drift apart again or whatever. And, and this, this tune would have been, it wasn't in the movie, but it would have been right at it home. Fit. In w- one of those montages. Yeah. It really would have fit. Yeah. yeah. You're right. <laughs> um, so let's check it out uh, from Tony Bennett and Bill Evans. Some other time. Mm-hmm. 
Where has the time all gone to? Haven't done half the things we want to. Oh, well, we'll catch up some other time. This day was just a token. Too many words are still unspoken. Oh, we'll catch up some other time. Just when the fun is starting. Comes the time for partying, but let's be glad for what we've had and what's to come. And we just heard some other time from Tony Bennett and Bill Evans, and we're going to move on to "We'll Be Together Again." And this is a, a tune, uh, you know, kind of along the same lines as the other one. I think this one is even more sad yeah. um, <laughs> than, than the previous one. From what I can get from the lyrics, it's like, uh, from what I got from it, it's like a man dying and singing to his wife, don't don't worry because yeah. we'll be together again. You yeah, know? one way or another. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Yeah, very, very sad tune. Yeah, yeah. I, I, this is it's not just that it's it's sadness, but it's it's just a a great profession type record where you know you 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 get certain things off your chest, so to speak, um, which which in itself can be relieving. Um, and I I think that's a. That's one good thing about this. It's not all sad, even though a lot of it it seems somber. You know, it's it's like a relief to to kind of reflect and and get some some introspection and you know that that's another thing that I, I, I'm taking from this. You know, um, and, and going back to what you were saying too about about Bill Evans and his 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 phrasing, um, he really really was a, a an individual to me that gave the piano a, a new language almost if you will where he he could just make a piano talk um uh, he's got a so much insight to expressing emotion through that piano and and like i said it they were just made for each other on this record you know tony bennett's you know, delivery on 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 the vocal and and his emotion in his voice, and then Bill Evans, you know, the way, you know, he could just do little little subtle things with the piano. You know, it just it just made this work so very well. You know. Yeah, uh, yeah. One thing I I really like about this album is the chance that um, Bill Evans gets to solo on most of these songs. Um, you know, it's not just sort of Bill Evans accompanying Tony Bennett. There's a, there's many 
just amazing solos solo mm-hmm. sections you know where, where bill evans will go off and just play these tunes as if he was just by himself um and you know so there's a touch of improvisation in there and um there's, there's a one of those great solos in this tune which um hopefully i can get into the excerpt that we hear um but uh yeah man yeah j- just you know in a lot of albums where you have a uh singer you know singing songs it's maybe accompanied by a piano or something the focus is on the singer the singer is the star you know everybody else is is sort of secondary yeah here these two musicians are presented as just complete equals you know yeah. um there's not really one that 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 outshines the other you know they're just yeah. really and, and you can you can hear that respect for each other in the performances i think yeah i totally agree um a record that that sort of like this that i thought of uh when i first started listening to it, it was a uh, uh, John Coltrane and, and Johnny Hartman, um, the record they did together on Impulse. I mean, it's, it's just like this, where you have a guy who, who vocally, Johnny Hartman just had this rich, husky voice, you know, that, I mean, I, the only other person I can think of that was on par with him at that time was maybe Nat King Cole. And, uh, and then you have John Coltrane just kind of, you know, alongside of him and then you know, like you said, we'll we'll go off and improvise. You know, as as Hartman lays out. I mean, it, it's this record is a lot like that record, um, where it, they just do some really classic stuff, some very somber stuff. Um, you know, uh, just a, a a great example of of how you know two really good good artists can come together. And, and make it work. Because so many times, I mean, you can put, you know, really talented guys in the studio, and, and if the chemistry's not right, I mean, the record will, I mean, it'll suck, you know, for lack of a better <laughs> way of saying yeah, it. Yeah, yeah. But, but it does not, you know, suck here. You know, this is a, a great record. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. So let's check out this last track from Tony Bennett and Bill Evans. This is We'll Be Together Again. Someday, 
some way we both have a lifetime before us for parting is not goodbye we'll be together And we just heard We'll Be Together Again by Tony Bennett and Bill Evans. And now, to move on to something totally different, um, Alban Berg's opera, Voltsek. So, uh, you know, there's a lot going on here, and I, and I really struggled with, <laughs> you know, how much to talk about and how much not to talk about and, um, you know, trying to be succinct and all that stuff. This album, um, recorded by the Hamburg State Philharmonic, released in 1999 of, uh, yeah, his his opera, Wozzeck. And um, a little bit about Berg. Uh, he lived from 1885 to 1935. Um, and uh, he, was, he was writing this opera um, while World War I was going on. And he was actually serving in the Austrian army during World War I. And would work on Wozzeck uh, during his leave, you know, when he would go off on leave. It wasn't completed until 1922, so he actually worked on it from 1914 to 1922. Um, so he worked on it, you know, for eight years. And, uh, you know, I, I think a lot of it was informed by his experiences in the Austrian army and, and his, his experiences uh, during World War One. Um uh, do, do you want to say anything about your impressions of this before I sort of go off on it? Or no, I'm, I'm I'm listening. I mean, you know, I'm sure like everybody else. I'm go go right ahead. I, I'll I'll chime in in a second. Okay. Well, uh, first I thought I'd just sort of explain the story a little bit, um, because every opera obviously is telling a story. You know, just like if I was explaining a movie or something uh, or a play. And uh, the music, you know, obviously is in service to that story. So Wozzeck is this soldier and uh, he's he's kind of a, I think, s- sort of a, uh, supposed to represent this kind of typical soldier, kind of everyman type person. Um, he, he's depicted as kind of a loser, kind of not too smart. Um He's in a relationship with Marie, one of the other characters uh, in the opera, and uh, he's sort of uh, he's poor. So the the opera makes constant reference to the exploitation of people that are you know not as smart, not as educated, people that are poor, and uh, Wozzeck makes a lot of bad decisions, like he lets this quack doctor experiment on him with psychoactive drugs for money because he needs the money. Um, and, uh, you know, at one point, uh, Marie, his, his lover, Marie, uh, cheats on him with a drum major. And, and actually she's kind of raped. I mean, 
what happens in the uh, in the opera is this this guy forces himself on her and she finally submits to him but you know she's basically kind of raped by him um and uh, this guy gives her a pair of earrings and Wozzeck finds them and you know discovers her infidelity and becomes enraged and kind of goes nuts you know pe- people are constantly sort of dumping on Voltzek and uh he's going crazy from these drugs that he's been given um and uh he eventually stabs Marie because he it sort of goes into this you know high drama thing like if I can't have her then no one can so he stabs her in the forest um he throws the knife into a pond then he leaves then he realizes oh I don't think I threw the knife far enough into the pond so he returns to the pond and he wades out to get the knife. He drowns in the pond um, and is discovered by the doctor and, and this other guy. Um, and the opera ends with uh, ch- these children playing outside, including Marie's young son. And then they find Marie's body. Marie's son sees Marie's body. And that's kind of how it ends. <laughs> so... Uh, Kind of rough. <laughs> yeah, yeah, ain't a happy story. Um, and uh, you know, this was going on during a time when uh, people were really obsessed and interested in uh, Sigmund Freud's, you know, new theories of psychoanalysis and and how, you know, the brain works and all this kind of stuff, um, and uh, of you know mental states like delirium and schizophrenia and, and and all this kind of stuff and so you know the music here really tries to depict that um berg was part of what was called the second viennese school of composition this was led by composer arnold schoenberg and schoenberg had developed this new way of writing music right it was called the 12 tone system and a lot of people refer to it as atonality as well and and what this tried to do was it tried to use all 12 tones of the chromatic scale equally so that no single pitch stood out, thus creating a tonal center, right? So it, it tried to move away from tonality completely. Um, and this was the system of composition that Alban Berg was working in. And so it's kind of a, a good sound to depict this descent into madness, really, that Wozzeck goes through over the course of the opera um yeah i mean you know it's really really huge subject and i can't really go into it it would take the duration of an entire show to try to explain how all this stuff works but um you know it's really really i think tough for the 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 uninitiated listener to delve into music like this because the the musical language is um it's like an it's like an alien language really i mean for a person's ear to hear you know there's no tonal there's no tonality to hold on to um so i i don't know i mean how how did how did you react to this music when you heard it well you know the way you described it i mean obviously he's he's got a lot going on in his life you know and most of it's bad um, and to to describe it in a sense to where the music plays off of his so-called you know descent into hell, seemingly, you know, it, you know, it, it helps me to understand it a little better, you know, um, 
because I mean, for me, listening to the opera, I kind of want to see the the visual on stage. It may not help that much more, but you know, it. it I think it would it would definitely you know be uh, something I, I I would want more so than just the the sound itself without really knowing the story, um, but I I think obviously you know when you when you look at what what was going on with him and then think about you know Berg himself you know it was just a a way for him to express something that people may not have been able to get a grasp on as far as what some soldiers were going through, you know, and, um, you know, you, you may even be able to bring it into the here and now with, you know, some of the military, you know, in the present age, you know, some guys that, that feel like, you know, maybe they're like, like the military was, you know, the best thing for them, you know, at first. And then, you know, because of, you know, a variety of circumstances, you know, it, it turns out, you know, maybe it wasn't. And, and not necessarily to put, you know, all of what was going on with him uh, on blame with the military. You know, I, I mean, there were obviously other factors. Um, but to have uh, the music give that sort of perspective and, 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 and listen to it. And I, I kind of think I, I understand what you're saying. You know, it, it, it doesn't really overwhelm the listener with the with the music itself, but it's more playing off of, of the, the drama in his his life, so to speak. Um, but uh, yeah, this is the this is one that, you know, I, I, I would like to listen to it a lot more, you know, to go back to what you were just saying about the scale, you know, because that's something I, I definitely did not. I did not think about it first. Right, right, right. Um, yeah, I mean, uh, all this classical music that we're uh, that we are talking about today um, has multiple, multiple layer upon layer of meaning uh, written into the music, and uh, none of these pieces you can you can not get any of these pieces without learning a bunch of information and a bunch of stuff about them first. You know, um, it, it, it's just totally different listening experience than say, uh, hearing a pop song on the radio, you know, a pop song on the radio, you hear it, you get it. You know what I mean? You, you <clears throat> listen to it once and you get it. Um, this music is not like that. Um, even for someone like me, who's intimately familiar with classical music, um, I have to, you know, listen to this stuff multiple times. And it, it, it's really, you know, once you get, you, you find out the information about this stuff and you really get into its deeper meanings and all that kind of stuff, uh, and, and you get it, it really becomes a never-ending um sort of source of wonder and discovery really because because i've heard all these pieces before and you know my most recent listening of these pieces was you know this morning before the show and i'm still hearing things that i've never heard before noticing things that i've never noticed before um and discovering things that i never realized before out of these pieces even something like berlioz symphony fantastique a piece that i heard probably for the first time maybe 20 years ago i'm still hearing things that i've never heard before 
And so, you know, these pieces are, are that deep and that layered. Um, and they're just not something you can just throw on and sort of casually listen to one time and get. They're just not, um, you know. Uh, so uh, let's move on to the first excerpt that we're going to hear from this this opera. And uh, this comes from, both of these excerpts come from like the very end of the opera. So this one is uh, Act 3, Scene 4. It's titled, Das Messe, wo ist das Messe? <laughs> Which means, uh, the knife, where is the knife? So this is the scene where Wozzeck has returned to the lake. And um, he's going to wade out into the lake looking for the knife. Um he, which then he drowns and the the other the doctor and this other guy come by and discover his body um, is what what's going on in the scene um and uh yeah um it, do you want to say anything about this before or maybe we should just listen to it yeah we, let's let's go ahead and listen to it i mean I, yeah I'll, and i'll chime in at the end okay so yeah let's let's check out this excerpt from act three scene four of Voltzek. And we just heard Das Messe, Wo ist Das Messe from Act 3, Scene 4 of Wozzeck. Um, and uh, yeah, I don't know. Any thoughts on that? It, it sounds like he's at the end of his rope. I mean, <laughs> well, he's kind yeah. of at the end of his rope mental. You know, he, he's lost it at this point. Yeah. I mean, he's totally lost it uh, up, you know, up upstairs he's lost it <laughs> yeah yeah just yeah. the 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 sound of, of of the music play and and his and his vocal i mean he 
he just sounds like he's just just totally frantic and and kind of griping at the same time and um yeah he's just he's just not in a good place at all you know when i first heard this i that's what i took from it yeah oh i should also mention that uh the style of singing that's going on because it, it, it sounds really strange uh, is a style that was actually invented uh, by Arnold Schoenberg uh, called Sprechstimme, which which basically is like this sort of cross between singing and talking. Um, mm-hmm. So it's 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 really strange thing to hear when you first hear it. Um, but yeah, it's it's this cross between singing and speaking, and uh, I think it it really does a good job at conveying his state of mind. You know. Um, he sounds nuts. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, so, um, yeah. And, you know, I, I wish I could understand everything that he's saying. Of course, this this whole opera is sung in German. And, uh, you know, I, I, I'm not a German speaker. I don't know what he's saying. But, you know, I can pick out a few words and here and there. And, you know, he's he's going on about blut, blut. You know, this means blood and 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 it just it just sounds really eerie and 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 kind of crazy you know so um so yeah so let's move on to the final scene of the opera that we're going to listen to this is act three scene five ringle ringle rosenkrantz ringle rhine and and basically what this is is um it opens up with these children. They're supposed to be just playing outside with this really creepy, twisted version of what's basically Ring Around the Rosie, uh, like the German version of Ring Around the Rosie, which is that Ringel, Ringel, Rosenkranz, Ringel, Ryan. That's Ring Around the Rosie in German, mm. basically. So it's these kids, you know, playing around, singing Ring Around the Rosie. Um, and then uh, these people sort of off to the side find the body of Marie and uh, Marie's young son is among the children playing and he, you know, sees her dead body. And I think it's, it's really kind of chilling when he first sees her body and he says, um, (laughs) I don't know what he says first, but it sounds like he's just saying, dude, my mother is dead. That's kind of how he says it. This real matter of fact, he sort of says, dude, Dein Mutter ist tot, you know, uh, in German. But he says, dude, my mother is dead. Just sort of like really matter of fact. And these and these voices, they are actual children in the opera. You know, it's not like adults playing child parts. These are these are real children. Um, and and it, that's kind of how the opera ends. And it's really kind of chilling, you know, um, and, and disturbing. Uh, what did you think of this? Uh, well, yeah, that. That's that's kind of what I gather too. I mean, you you can hear from the music and, and obviously the the children's voices that you know the mood goes from very very playful and you know it, it just sounds like kids out having fun to suddenly like oh hell um, I think that's a dead body and I think that's my mom yeah um, <laughs> yeah right exactly <laughs> and I mean again it going back to the what you were saying initially about the the layers of, of I guess emotion put out through the music and and through the I guess like you said the scale um, you know that is you know I guess the 
the best way to present opera. I mean, if you're going to, you know, have a, a dramatic setting, you know, you, you want the music to to help lay it out as much as possible, you know. And, yeah. um, you know, for, for what I know about opera, which is little of nothing, you know, I, I would uh, definitely appreciate, you know, more of what's going on on the stage when it, it comes out through the music and, and the orchestra, so... Yeah. Well, I mean, I can say, you know, I, I've, I've seen this opera, you know, I've, I've seen it live and, um, the effect that it has on you is, um, when you watch, you know, th- this opera from beginning to end, uh, it's powerful. I mean, it's, um, you know, this opera is, is bleak and it's just presented in this, just the most raw realist way and it's just really disturbing and depressing (laughs) you know that's just how it that's how this opera is you know um but i think he wanted to you know depict these these uh things that happen in real life as realistically and as raw as he could because opera especially opera you know had it had a and has such a uh, a tradition of presenting things in a really sort of lofty way, you know, so, sort of, uh, you know, larger than life and kind of unrealistic. You know what I mean? Yeah. Um, and this was, in a sense, a reaction against that traditional opera style. It was a very much a reaction against that. Um, and uh, yeah, I mean, you really get it. It's, it's almost like watching, you know, just some black and white gritty realist movie you know where everybody dies and you're just like damn you know <laughs> you know <laughs> <laughs> yeah i know what you're talking about yeah um <laughs> so yeah let's let's check this out this this last scene act three scene five ringel ringel rosenkrantz ringel rhein from albanberg's wotzek And we just heard the end of Waltzek. 
And uh, we're going to move on to another work of Albon Berg and in, in a, our third album, uh, his Violin Concerto. And this album is uh, Mark Kaplan on Violin and the Budapest Festival Orchestra released in 2002. And there's actually two violin concertos on this album. There's one by Albon Berg and there's one by Igor Stravinsky. But um, I thought, you know, since... Berg is really the one, you know, that we're going by alphabetically and we're going to talk about uh we're going to talk about Stravinsky uh later on in the book anyway. Uh, I thought we would focus on Berg's violin concerto uh for this show. And uh a little bit about this violin concerto again, you know, this is a piece just like all the other classical pieces this week with multiple, you know, layer upon layer of meaning in, uh, you know, woven into it. And uh, this, this piece was commissioned in 1935 by violinist Louis Krasner. <clears throat> and at first, you know, Berg was, was kind of not interested in the project. He was really deeply um, at work on his second opera, Lulu. And uh, it wasn't until <clears throat> uh, the daughter of well, a friend of his, you know, a friend of the family, um, the 18-year-old Manon Gropius, who was the daughter of architect Walter Gropius, um, died at, like I said, age 18 of polio. And I think this girl was was very close with Berg, and uh, Berg was really affected by her death and vowed to write a musical memorial to her and entitled or subtitled the piece To the Memory of an Angel. Um, and the piece is just, like I said, layer upon layer of meaning, um, depicting, you know, Manangropius herself and, you know, everything that Berg felt about her. It's and also depicting Berg's grief at her death and, and just all kinds of things. Um, and I also should, should say that Manangropius was the daughter of, of I said Walter Gropius and his wife Alma Mahler, who was the ex-wife of Gustav Mahler, um, who was another big composer. And we're gonna, you know, uh, we're gonna have all kinds of connections like this um, in the Berio Sinfonia that we're gonna talk about after this. But anyway, um, so yeah, um, any any thoughts about this piece? Beautiful, uh, meditative. Uh, when I first listened to it, that's the first thing I, I thought about. I was like, you know, I, I could sit and, and just totally relax, especially this this first one. Um, just a, a great. Uh, seemingly, it's it's almost like it's almost like a, a, a violinist who's, who's kind of like, you know, warming up um, and just yeah. kind of. You know, playing tones from his violin, uh, just to kind of, you know, get an ear for for the sound of, of whatever you know, where, wherever he's at, the room he's in. I mean, you know, really great, but really, really simple too. You know, and like I said I just it was it was relaxing to me when I first heard it. I was like, you know, I, I could just totally see, you know, this as a, a meditative piece. You know. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. I mean, I think that the very beginning, which we're going to listen to, the the very opening of the concerto, um, is meant to depict, you know, all the uh, good things about Man and Gropius, you know, that Berg felt. And uh, he wanted to depict, you know, her, um, 
you know, aspects of her personality and, you know, her softness and openness and, and uh, obviously, you know, he had a very high opinions and very high feelings about, about her. Um, And you're right. You know, the very beginning opens with the violinist just sort of uh, playing the open strings of the violin, you know, like you said, almost like a, he's warming up or something. And uh, what, Berg did was he would weave uh, elements of tonality into his 12 tone rows, which were meant to, you know, destroy tonality. But he was the only one of these composers using this 12 tone system that really made an effort to weave in tonality into this music. And he did so by um, weaving in these open strings of the violin into his 12 tone row um, is how he did it. And um, so that's what you get. You know, you get the concerto opening with just this sort of austere um, open strings of the violin. And it sort of continues from there in a very uh, relaxing way and very ethereal. And like you said, you know, good sort of meditative and, and introspective and, and, and beautiful, you know, and it's really, uh, I don't know. A word beautiful is not something you usually associate with 12 tone music. (laughs) Um, so yeah, it's, uh, it's quite an opening. I don't know. Why don't we just hear it? We just hear what we get into. Um, this is the, the, uh, opening, the Andante, the first movement of Berg's violin concerto. And we just heard the opening of Berg's Violin Concerto. And we're going to move on to um, the last part of the concerto. So uh, the Adagio. And uh, what 
Berg does in this is sort of foreshadows um, a piece like the Berlioz Sinfonia, which we're going to talk about next, where um, when he was composing the piece, Berg noticed that the last notes, the last three or four notes, I can't remember, of his 12-tone row that he was using corresponded to the beginning of this Bach cantata um, called Es ist genug, which means um, it is enough, I think is what that means. But uh, so what he did is he he looked at this Bach cantata and he wove this Bach cantata into the fabric of this movement of this piece. Um, and so he'll have, you know, Bach's version in the clarinets and then it's sort of thrown around the orchestra and incorporated into his own music. And uh, he used this for several reasons, but one is if you read the text of the cantata, because the original cantata is something that's sung, you know, by voices. And the text of this uh, cantata is, I'm going to read it, it is, It is enough, Lord, if it pleases you, unshackle me at last. My Jesus comes, I bid the world good night. I travel to the heavenly home, I surely travel there in peace, my troubles left below. It is enough, it is enough. So that's the text of this piece. And, um, you know, I think it so reflected I don't know how he must have been feeling about uh, Manon Gropius's death, you know, hmm. at the time um, that, uh, you know, he wove this into the fabric of the music and it just creates this, I don't know, really interesting and profound effect within this concerto. So what did you think of this? Yeah, I I, I think you're, you're right in, in describing um, it. The way the way you put it, I mean, it, it's it, it sounded when I first listened to it, kind of like a like a boat on the stormy sea, you know, like kind of tumultuous, but but like a sort of like a a bringing things to an end, so to speak. Uh, and yeah, I, I guess yeah. that way the way you describe the the title, I mean, I mean that that definitely is 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 right on point, you know. I mean. Uh, the 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 first but like I said the first thing I when I first listened to it I mean it just just sounded like you know just a just a loud crashing in so to speak uh, if if that makes sense I don't know if it does or not yeah uh, no no I know what you're saying yeah but um, yeah that that in itself uh, I guess like you said it when when he's you know trying to seemingly I guess make make peace with 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 what he was going through, um, it, it, it kind of translates in, in the, in the sound of this piece, you know, uh, and it makes better sense, you know, when you, you, you understand, you know, I guess, you know, what, what he was having to deal with and, and, um, her passing. Yeah. Um, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, and at the, at the very end of the piece, you know, I don't know if I'm going to be able to get this into the excerpt, but um, at the very end of the piece, how the piece ends is the violin sort of climbs up its register to its absolute highest range, at the, while at the same time, the remaining instruments that are playing fall down to their absolute lowest range. So it's almost like the soul sort of, you know, ascending up to heaven and the earth falling away, you know, is what he's depicting, you know, musically. Um, 
which is how the piece ends. So, you know, it ends on this very sort of profound way. Um, yeah. So, uh, let's just check it out. The, uh, the Adagio from Alban Berg's Violin Concerto. We just heard the Adagio from Berg's Violin Concerto. And we're going to move on to Sinfonia by Luciano Berrio. Um, this is uh, this CD is by the London Voices and the Gert, uh, Goetheberg's Symphoniker, I guess, um, released in 2005. Uh, so, yeah, Luciano Berrio lived from 1925 to 2003. So, um, you know, died pretty recently. Um, This piece, uh, lots and lots to talk about this piece. It's a a huge piece for orchestra and voices in five movements, um, composed in 1968 and uh, 69. And uh, we're going to listen to excerpts from the second movement called O King, and then the third movement, um, titled in Ruhig Fleissender Bewegung, I think is how you pronounce it. Um, so let's start with the second movement. Um, second movement, O King. You know, it. this movement is a really kind of a beautiful and ethereal movement for voices and uh, in the choir. And what they're singing is basically this is a, a monumental tribute to Martin Luther King is what this is. Mm-hmm. Um, and it was written, you know, uh, Martin Luther King was assassinated April 4th, 1968, and Berio wrote this piece immediately following that event. And uh, the singers are singing basically Martin Luther King's name over and over again, just elongating the uh, vowels over, you know, a long, a long period of time. So they'll start, you know, sing ma ma, you know this, and then lu lu Luther King like this. Um, so you really, it's it's hard to distinguish what they're saying. It almost just sounds like they're singing vowels, you know, in this sort of ethereal, angelic kind of choir almost. 
but they're actually saying Martin Luther King over and over again. Um, I don't know. What did you think of this? Well, one thing you said, uh, ethereal, that that definitely was one thing that came to my mind initially when I I first listened to this. Uh, And like I said, it's almost like a like a chanting type dedication to him, you know, and in in the way they present this, um, there's a there's a scene in uh, in 2001, the the science fiction movie where <laughs> I know exactly what you're talking about. Yeah, yeah, where they're going to uh, to look at the monolith that they dug up on the moon, and that that scene where they're flying out to it, the the music that's that's played in that scene that that's the first thing also too that one of the first things that came to my mind when i heard this that that kind of oh you know i was like wow that's yeah that's, that's really a, pretty that's another <clears throat> excuse me famous piece from the 1960s it's by a composer named Georgi ligeti it's called yeah. it's his uh lux eterna um and yeah yeah there are definitely similarities in, yeah, in yeah, yeah. I love Legetti. He's a beast. <laughs> he, <laughs> he is a beast. I've I've actually sung in Lux Eterna, and uh, that was a, a real cool experience to be, you know, sort of inside that piece. And yeah, but um, but yeah, yeah, yeah. But that that's uh that's a couple of things that 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 kind of crossed my mind when I when I first listened to this, and I, you know, really really. <coughs> unique in its uh i guess in a, a ability to, to kind of mix voices and, and and make different things come out uh, from from the performances on on this record i mean i guess you know i i would think avant-garde sounding piece uh experimental music even when, when it comes to uh uh a sound for classical music I would say this is definitely you know experimental than anything I'd heard in you know my life so yeah. to speak yeah yeah yes absolutely yeah um but yeah I mean even though it's you know put put all these you know whatever labels on it like avant-garde experimental uh you know postmodern, all these all these labels um it still comes out as this beautiful monument to Martin Luther King Yes. You know? Yes. Um, so, yeah, let's hear this. This uh, excerpt from the second movement of Berio's Sinfonia, his O King. Thank you. 
And we just heard O King from Sinfonia. And we're going to move on to the third movement in Ruhig Fleissender Bewegung, which I, th- I think means in German, um, in a quiet flowing way, sort of. That's what it means. Uh, this is taken from Mahler's Second Symphony. So this movement takes a lot of explanation. <laughs> um, uh, and and also I have to say, to preface it by saying that I think this is um, perhaps the earliest example of sampling in the way we think of sampling. Hmm. Um you know, you don't expect that from from a genre like classical music, but I, I really think this is uh, the first instance of it in in the modern sense of how we think of sampling. Um, so, what this movement is essentially is it's like a musical collage or an installation. So, you know, when you go to the art museum and you see uh, an installation or collage where the 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 artist has maybe taken all this these different materials and these found objects and sort of assembled them into like this whole composition, you know, mm-hmm. that's, that's essentially what Barrio has done here, but with sound and with music. So what he starts with is the backdrop of the piece, or you can, you can think of it as like the background of the piece is essentially the scherzo movement from Gustav Mahler's symphony number no. two. And it's, you know, changed around and hacked up a little bit and reorchestrated and stuff. But essentially, that's what it that's what the background of this movement is. Um, Then what he does on top of that is he looks for musical quotations from other pieces of classical music through the entire history of classical music from Bach all the way up to the 1960s. And he looks for quotations of music from other composers that fit somehow into this this uh Mahler movement right and then he la- layers these if you if you if you want if you you know layers these samples over it so you know to give an example in in one of the uh in one of the you know little parts of this movement um he you know, we hear this violin line from the second movement of Berg's Violin Concerto that we just listened to um, put in there, this chromatically descending line that appears two measures before a similar line in the Mahler piece. And then right after the similar line in the Mahler piece happens, it's followed by a similar violin descent taken from Brahms' Violin Concerto. <laughs> Um, so this kind of thing happens all over this movement. And, you know, there have been dissertations written trying to figure out where all the musical quotations come from. The list is huge. Um, you know, just a small sampling. You know, he has quotations in here from Schoenberg, Debussy, Mahler, Hindemith, Ravel, Berlioz, um, incidentally, from Symphony Fantastique that we're going to talk about in a minute. Um, Stravinsky, Strauss, Bach, Berg. He has quotations in here from the Violin Concerto and Waltzek, both of what we just talked about. Uh, Beethoven, Berle, uh, uh, sorry, Beethoven, Boulez, Webern, Stockhausen. You know, just that's just a, a sampling of of the samples that he has in here. Um, the only difference is, you know, between like 
something like this and like Paul's Boutique, say, that we talked about earlier on an earlier show, is that they're taking, you know, lifting actual audio from records. And what uh, what um, Berio is doing is he's just lifting, you know, the musical notation that's going to be performed by someone else from from another piece of music. If that makes yeah, sense. Yeah, and actually, actually, re, actually having it replayed, you know, I'm assuming actually having it replayed, you know, through the the live instrumentation there. Um, is that correct, or, or you know, did he did they have it, you know, played some other way? I mean, I'm not. No, really yeah, sure. he has it. He has it all written into the score. Okay. So okay. you know, while while the orchestra is playing this backdrop of Mahler, you know, then he'll have you know, the first violin play this quotation from the Berg Violin Concerto, and then you have the second violin play this quotation from the Brahms Violin Concerto while the clarinet is back there, you know, playing a quotation from some other piece. And so, you know, that's how, that's kind of how it works. So just when you think there's no way that this piece could be any more complicated, (laughs) (laughs) um, on top of all that, there's eight vocalists, let's say, um, which they're all sort of either singing, which they could be singing, uh, again, quotations from the other pieces, or they're reciting uh, spoken dialogue. And some of the dialogue comes from Samuel Beckett's novel, The Unnameable. Um, Some of it comes from James Joyce. Some of it comes from graffiti from a 1968 Paris protest that uh, Berio saw. Some of it comes from Barrio's diary. Um, and you have all this stuff going on at once, all on top of each other, all at the same time. So a, a, a lot of times it's very difficult to discern, you know, what's going on because it's all it's all happening at the same time. Um, and, uh, you know, a lot of speculation has been uh, done on this piece as to, you know, what it all means and what it's supposed to represent and uh, again, there's there's layer upon layer upon layer of meaning in this piece, you know, and it was supposed to be kind of a, you know, on one sense, a reaction against the classical music establishment being kind of stuck in the 19th century, which admittedly, um, it really kind of still is even to this day. Um, and uh, it was also a commentary on the troubled times of the 1960s and the complexity of the times and um, everything that was going on there. It, it also had humorous moments and, mm-hmm. um, uh, you know, like towards the end of the piece, the the guy reciting, you know, one of the voices, you can hear him saying, you know, talking incessantly to himself, repeating after repeating, talking incessantly, incessantly. And I don't know, it just when you hear it, it's just, you know, kind of funny and it's kind of meant to be funny. Yeah. Um, yeah. That, that's, that's what I took from yeah. it. I mean, with, with the, the, the clamor, and and the mix of all the different voices, it, it was very reflective of that that period, I think. And uh, you know, I I really was impressed, you know, by by this particular album in the in a sense of when it came out and the style of it. Um, really, really interesting to to see his his sort of view on you know the the era that you know, it was presented, I guess, you know, the late 60s and and how things were, you know, so crazy, you know, uh, socially and, and politically and 
and, and this represents that. I mean, especially this particular track where so, sometimes there's so many things happening, so many voices, it can get a little disorienting, you know. Yeah. But you you hear a spark here and there of something that you you can identify with, and 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 I I think that's one of the things that you can definitely laugh about, you know, where it's it's almost. I, I was talking earlier about how it, it's it's almost like someone having a bunch of TVs on all at the same time and just kind of channel surfing, you know, yeah. through a variety of things, you know, just in, in a very crazy fashion. So, yeah, exactly. Yeah. That's, that's a really good analogy. I mean, a bunch of TVs on at the same time or a bunch of radios on at the same time. And um, that's what Barrio intended. He didn't intend all this to be super clear. He intended it to be, you know, really cacophonous and a bunch of stuff going on at once and, and confusing. And I think he, he meant it that way to reflect you know how life was and how and how life really kind of still is you know you get this uh cacophony of noise whether that noise is is actual noise or um you know political noise or or social noise or and you have all this stuff coming at you all at the same time all at once and uh, i think he did it this way to reflect that you know mm-hmm. um, yeah and especially in the 60s you know I think this phenomenon was really new because it was really the the dawning of our modern age, you know, the dawning of the information age and uh, the space age and, you know, yeah. television and radio and all that stuff. It was really when all that stuff was, was starting and uh, it, it must have seemed, you know, like this piece, you know, to a lot of people who remembered a lot of people who were still alive at the time, you know, who could, who could still had in their memory that older time before all of this technology and stuff existed. Um, yeah. So, yeah, let's, you know, I, I can, you can go on and on about this, especially even just this one movement you can go on and on about, but let's just listen to it. Um, and I'll, I'll try to get as much of it, you know, in the excerpt as I can. Uh, but uh, this is the third movement from Berio's Sinfonia. It's late now. He shall never hear again the lowing cattle, the rush of the stream. In a chamber, dimensions unknown, I do not move and never shall again on long road or short. The fact is, I trouble no one. But I did. And after each group disintegration, the name of Mayakovsky hangs in the clean air.
when they ask why all this, it is not easy to find an answer. For when we find ourselves face to face now here, and they remind us that all this can't stop the wars, can't make the old younger or lower the price of bread. <laughs> And we just heard the third movement of Luciano Berrios' Sinfonia. And we're going to move on to our final album of the day, Hector Berlioz' Symphony Fantastique. Uh, this is the Orchestre Re- Revolutionnaire et Romantique, led by John Elliott Gardner, released in 1993. And uh, <clears throat> a little bit about Berio. I mean, <laughs> Berio. A little bit about Berlioz. Sorry. There you go. <laughs> yeah, uh, uh. Um, Berlioz lived from 1803 to 1869. Um, obviously, uh, French, born, born in Paris. And uh, this piece, Symphony Fantastique, is another, uh, again, you know, I think it's amazing that all these pieces got put together when we're just going in alphabetical order. You know, all these pieces got stuck right together alphabetically. And they're all these giant pieces with these multiple layers of meaning with you know really you have to learn a lot about them to to really begin to understand them and um this piece is no exception uh this piece was composed in uh oh i i i dropped the day i think around 1830 is when this piece was composed um three years after the death of beethoven so you know berlioz is this young you know, Parisian composer trying to make a name for himself. And everybody at this point in classical music throughout the entire 19th century, even into the 20th century, everybody is now under the shadow of Beethoven. Beethoven has died and now everyone's under his shadow. Um, And, you know, trying to figure out, well, 
you know, now what do we do? You know, uh, we have this monumental figure of Beethoven. Now what do we do to distinguish ourselves? And uh, one of the things Berlioz did was he didn't invent the program music. I think really Beethoven kind of did that. But he took this uh, concept of program music to a whole other level with this piece. So what, let me explain what program music is. Program music is like writing a, writing a film score, let's say, to a film, you know, music to accompany a film a hundred years before film existed. So, so yeah. what it is is, is um, it relies on a program, a printed program of something, a story, let's say that the audience will read ahead of time so they know what's going on. They know this story. And then you have this music, this instrumental music depicting this story. That's what program music is. Um, so what Berlioz did is he wrote this program, this story, that he had printed in all the Paris newspapers, magazines, all this kind of stuff that everybody read prior to the concert. So everybody coming to the concert and then you know, they got the program at the concert as well, but everyone knew what this was supposed to be. And this was a brand new concept. Um, and, uh, you know, to depict all this stuff in music, uh, Berlioz came up with all kinds of new innovative devices to, in order to, you know, depict all this action and all this story that's going on. Uh, because there's no visual to look at, right? It's just music that you're hearing. Um, so this piece came about when Berlioz saw a traveling Shakespeare company perform Macbeth. And uh, there was an actress in that company named Harriet Smithson. And he saw this actress, Harriet Smithson, and immediately fell in love with her, right? Mm -hmm. And... Uh, Basically, this entire symphony is about his obsession with Harriet Smithson, almost to the point of like reading it like a stalk, like he was like some crazy stalker. <laughs> I mean, that's how we would kind of look at it now. But um, back then, you know, he was just seen as, you know, romantic and whatever. Mm -hmm. <laughs> <clears throat> but, uh, I don't. I one thing I'm going to do, and you know, this is I don't know. It's going to take a bit, but I, I think it's it's important. It's it's necessary that I do this. I'm going to read Berlioz's own program for this piece, just so because I think it's essential to understanding the piece. And um, we're going to listen to excerpts from the uh, fourth movement and the fifth movement. But I'm going to first read the program for all the movements. So. In the first movement, Berlioz writes, quote, The author imagines that a young, vibrant musician, afflicted by the sickness of spirit, which a famous writer has called the wave of passions, sees for the first time a woman who unites all the charms of the ideal person his imagination was dreaming of and falls desperately in love with her. By a strange anomaly, the beloved image never presents itself to the artist's mind without being associated with a musical idea in which he recognizes a certain quality of passion, but endowed with the nobility and shyness which he credits to the object of his love. 
This melodic image and its model keep haunting him ceaselessly, like an EDA fixe, or that means fixed idea. Mm-hmm. This, this explains the constant recurrence in all the movements of the symphony of the melody, which launches the first allegro. The transitions from this state of dreamy melancholy, interrupted by occasional upsurges of aimless joy, to delirious passion, with its outbursts of fury and jealousy, its returns of tenderness, its tears, its religious consolations, all this forms the subject of the first movement. <clears throat> so that was Berlioz's own program for the first movement. And of course, he's talking about himself, you know, mm-hmm. <clears throat> um, and how he feels about, you know, all his feelings about Harriet Smithson. And he can't, you know, according to this, he can't look at Harriet Smithson without hearing this music in his head. So he creates this melody that's associated with her. And, you know, a modern equivalent would be something like uh, in, in Star Wars, for example. You know, when we have Princess Leia's theme, right? We have this theme that's always associated with Princess Leia. It's the same idea. You know, we yeah. have this we have this musical theme that's always associated with the love, right? The love interest. So, that's the first movement. The second movement, titled A Ball, he says, "The artist finds himself in the most diverse situations in life, in the tumult of a festive orgy, in the peaceful contemplation of the beautiful sights of nature, yet everywhere, whether in town or in the countryside, the beloved image keeps haunting him and throws his spirit into confusion. And I have to say, when he when he uses the word orgy, it's not in the modern sense of the word. It's more like a... Yeah, I kind of wondered about that, too. I, I, looked, yeah. I was like, okay, and I, I he, he can't, because I mean, he's it's, it's more like infatuation, obsession, not actual, you know... We, we've hooked up yet you know yeah well basically what he's saying is what when he says in the in the tumult of a festive orgy he just means like kind of a wild party so what he's yeah. saying in this in this part is that he's trying to distract himself away from his obsession by going to these big parties by retreating to nature and being by himself but despite all this you know he can't stop thinking about her that's that's what he's saying here so the third movement seen in the fields he says one evening in the countryside he hears two shepherds in the distance dialoguing with their rants de vache this is like a shepherd's song okay <clears throat> this pastoral duet the setting the gentle rustling of the trees in the wind some causes for hope that he has recently conceived all conspire to restore his heart an unaccustomed feeling of calm and to give to his thoughts a happier coloring He broods on his loneliness and hopes that soon he will no longer be on his own. But what if she betrayed him? This mingled hope and fear, these ideas of happiness disturbed by dark premonitions form the subject of the adagio. At the end, one of the shepherds resumes his song. The other one no longer answers. Distant sound of thunder, solitude, silence. So he's feeling, you know, in this part, he's feeling really alone. He's feeling like, should I tell her of my feelings? But, you know, what if she shoots me down? That kind of thing. You mm-hmm. know? Yeah. Okay. So this brings us to our first excerpt from the fourth movement titled March to the Scaffold. This is where the piece gets gets really interesting. Um, so from Berlioz's program notes, he says, convinced that his love is unappreciated, the artist poisons, poisons himself with opium. The dose of narcotic, while too weak to cause his death, 
plunges him into a heavy sleep accompanied by the strangest of visions. He dreams that he has killed his beloved, that he is condemned, led to the scaffold, and is witnessing his own execution. As he cries for forgiveness, the effects of the narcotics set in. He wants to hide, but he cannot, so he watches as an onlooker as he dies. The procession advances to the sound of a march that is sometimes somber and wild, and sometimes brilliant and solemn, in which a dull sound of heavy footsteps follows without transition the loudest outbursts. At the end of the march, the first four bars of the fixed idea reappear like the final thought of love, interrupted by the fatal blow when his head bounces down the steps. So, um, in this movement that we're going to hear, you know, he he depicts all this stuff musically, and I'm gonna I'm gonna have this in the uh, the this part in the excerpt that we're going to hear, and what we're going to hear is. Um, he we're going to hear a statement of the fixed idea in the clarinet are you still there hey everybody we're back um we lost mitch for a minute but uh (laughs) we're back and um i'm gonna try to pick up what i slipped and fell i don't know what happened what was that (laughs) um we are uh gonna try to pick up from from what i was talking about um, so I was talking about the fourth movement, the march to the scaffold, and uh, we're going. What we're going to hear, we're going to listen to, is you, you know how he depicts all this stuff through music. So we're going to hear a brief statement of the fixed idea in the clarinet, just really brief. This is like his last conscious thought before he's beheaded. Okay, so this is like towards the end of the movement. Uh, so the last conscious thought of a, of a man who's about to die, the last thing he thinks about, obviously, is her, right? <laughs> um, mm. Then we get this huge G major chord struck in the audience. This is de- depicting uh, the blow of the guillotine, right? Shh, you know, right down. Um, then we get this series of a bunch of pizzicato notes that is depicting the head rolling down the stairs, Pizzicato is where like the strings are uh, plucking the strings with their fingers, right? Mm-hmm. Um, then we get a final loud series of G major chords that depicts the roar of the crowd at when his head falls into the basket. So that's what we're gonna hear. Yeah, the 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 one thing that comes to my mind, um, especially uh, this first track that we listened to, uh, was uh, uh, Mary Melody's Looney Tunes composer. Uh, uh, Carl Starling. Yes, yes. Uh, Starling, yeah. He uh, had such a, a manner of, of taking music and, and score even uh, and and giving you a, an idea of, of something without actually having a visual. Even though, I mean, most of what he worked with had, you know, obviously animation, you know, with, with Bugs Bunny, Roadrunner or whatever. Um this is is reminiscent of that where you know he has so many tricks up his sleeve so to speak to to purvey an image to give you you know uh sound without vision that that gives you a scene or, or gives you an emotion or a feeling and and it's 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 at times very very playful even though the, the subject matter is not as playful you know at times 
um, you know, all the different little things going on, little subtle things at times that, that give you a, a clear picture without having a picture at all, I guess. Yeah, exactly. I mean, that's a great analogy that Carl Stalling and, and I'm, have no doubt that Carl Stalling, that Berlioz's music, you know, was a huge influence on Carl Stalling because Carl Stalling, like you said, had that amazing ability to depict like physical movement through, you know, through musical gesture, let's say. Yeah. And uh, <clears throat> really, Berlioz is uh, really, really the first composer to do that. Um, and uh, so let's let's just check this out. Let's check out this this. Uh, the end of the fourth movement, the march to the scaffold. just heard the march to the scaffold by berlioz from his symphony fantastique we're gonna move on to the last movement of this piece the last movement titled a witch's or dream of a witch's sabbath and uh i'll start again with berlioz's program note he sees himself at a witch's sabbath in the midst of a hideous gathering of shades sorcerers and monsters of every kind who have come together for his funeral strange sounds groans outbursts of laughter distant shouts which seem to be answered by more shouts the beloved melody appears once more but has now lost its noble and shy character and is now no more than a vulgar dance tune trivial and grotesque it is she who is coming to the sabbath roar of delight at her arrival she joins the diabolical orgy the funeral knell tolls burlesque parody of the dies irae the dance of the witches the dance of the witches combined with the dies irae so um yeah this this whole thing about the dies irae and this is what we're going to hear uh by the way um is uh, the dies irae is and again this is this is an example of a quotation of a sample almost you know like we've heard in all these other pieces uh, the dies irae is an ancient chant so we heard chant last time, you know, that, that Gregorian chant album. Um, the Dies Irae is an ancient Gregorian chant. Dies Irae means, I think it means uh, day of wrath. And it's associated with, you know, funeral, um, the reckoning, all that kind of stuff, you know. Yeah. Um, and he has it, you know, I, one thing I have to mention about this this recording that Tom Moon has in the book, this is kind of like that recording we heard of the Beethoven piano concertos, which is it's all done on period instruments. 
And um, mm. so it's all done on instruments of the time. And this is important. It's done with the original orchestration of the piece, which um, throughout Berlioz's life, he constantly revised and changed the orchestration. So the original orchestration um, had two instruments that basically are extinct at this point. Um, he incorporated an instrument called the Ophiclide, which was kind of like, it was a bass instrument. It was kind of like a cross between a tuba and a bassoon. And that's kind of how it sounds, like a cross between a tuba and a bassoon. And then he had the Diasire part played on the serpent. The serpent is a really ancient instrument. And it actually looks like a serpent. It looks like a big black serpent with holes in it that you play. It was a bass instrument, wind instrument. And apparently during these times, the serpent was always associated... Zuntai. Excuse me. I'm sorry about that. <laughs> okay. I'm so sorry about that. <laughs> the, uh, the serpent was associated with playing this DS in these churches because it had this, you know, sort of dark, archaic sound. And you know what I mean? Yeah. So he has this serpent and Ophiclide play this DS accompanied by these big bells. So in a modern recording of this piece, you would just hear the bells played by like tubular bells, like the tubular bells that are a normal part of the percussion section. But mm-hmm. originally, in the original orchestration, he actually had these two huge like church bells in there. And the percussionist would like hit him with his hammer. And man, the difference in the sound, that's what, that's what John Elliott Gardner has in this recording. And the difference in the sound, man, is just unbelievable. These bells are just awesome sounding. And then that, so in a modern recording in this section, you would have tubas playing the DSC array and the tubular bell playing the bell part. That's a, a world of different sound than in this recording, you have the serpent and the Ophiclide playing the DSC array and the actual bells doing and it's, it. The sound is just awesome. It is. Um, it is. Yeah. I agree. Um, um, just, I, 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 I like the idea, like you said, of, of people going back to, you know, period piece instrumentation and and making it, you know, sound so much more authentic than, you know, it would have been normally, you know, if they if they had used, you know, modern instruments. And uh, it's a cool example of, of, of this on this track, so. Yeah, yeah. So in this excerpt from the fifth movement, Dream of a Witch's Sabbath, we're going to first hear this fixed idea, which is usually presented in the clarinet, and it's twisted, as Berlioz said, uh, into this grotesque dance. So we're going to we're going to hear that. And, and basically, it's, you know, these witches and his beloved sort of all dancing around his grave in this sort of like mocking, grotesque way. Right. Um mm-hmm. And then we're going to hear this DS Ray come in, like I've been talking about. Um, so, yeah, let's check it out without without uh, going on further, which I could certainly do. <laughs> um, <laughs> this is the fifth movement, uh, Dream of a Witch's Sabbath of Hector Berlioz's Symphony Fantastique. Thank you. 
Witch's Sabbath by Hector Berlioz. And that is it for this week, episode number 19 of the 1000 Recordings podcast. Uh, if you'd like to send us an email, send us an email at 1000recordingspodcast at gmail.com. If you'd like to join us on Twitter, you can do that at twitter.com slash 1000rp. Our website is 1000rp.blogspot.com. And uh, you can join us on Facebook as well. And I also uh, wanted to mention that there are opportunities to sponsor the show um, from the website. And this will help us greatly in just the cost of producing the show, um, the cost of web hosting, the cost of, of, of getting this music and so we can present it to you and all this stuff. Uh, Mitch and I do this as a labor of love. And, and, and right now, you know, we're not paid for it. It's actually costing me money to produce this show. So, uh, we, any, any, uh, sponsorship, uh, we would appreciate. And we'd also ask you to help us out by going to iTunes and leaving us a five-star review, uh, and a five-star rating on iTunes so we can get the podcast out to more listeners. So did I miss anything? <laughs> no, no, you, you, you've got it covered. Uh, you know, we've definitely been getting some really good feedback on iTunes, which, I always appreciate any kind of feedback at all, you know, is, is welcome, you know, and, uh, you know, we definitely appreciate all, all the people that listen every week, uh, that, that give feedback, that give, you know, reviews that, uh, very grateful for all that stuff. Thank you. Definitely. Yeah. Um, we're, we're starting to, uh, create a, a really wonderful community of, music you know listeners music lovers around the podcast and uh i just think it's awesome yeah definitely yeah um so next week what's our our preview for next week um we're gonna start it off with another piece of hector berlioz le troyens which is french for the trojans um Mm -hmm. so his opera le troyens and then after that the the Wonderful, I love it. Um, West Side Story of Leonard Bernstein and Stephen Stephen Sondheim. That'll be fun. That'll be fun. Uh, then I don't. Do you want to take it? Do you have it in front of you or? Oh uh, yeah, Chuck Berry. Chuck Berry anthology. Uh, I'm looking forward to that. Yeah, he's Chuck Berry is 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 quite a character. Uh, obviously, you know, rock and roll icon. And uh, if you've uh, ever watched uh, anything on his personal life or. Uh, he's he's got a a, very, a really good documentary on his life, uh, you know, lots of stories about Chuck Berry. He's he was he was he's quite a guy. He's, he's still still around, still still going. Uh, yeah, yeah, something awesome. else. And then uh, after that, um, meeting by the river. Uh, it's like a Ry Cooter and a Vishwa Mohan Bihat. I, I think I'm, <laughs> I'm pronouncing that wrong, yeah. but I, I'm not familiar with. I know Ry Cooter, but I'm, I'm not familiar with this recording in particular. Um, but uh, yeah, I think it's that, his collaboration with an Indian musician. Oh, okay. okay. So yeah, yeah, that should be good. That should that's that should definitely be good. Yeah, that's, yeah. that's one I definitely had haven't haven't heard. Um, and uh, and I think the last one are is. Uh, Asha, and this is another Indian name. It's uh, Asha Bosch. I, I, I know I'm going to pronounce this wrong, uh, but it's, it's the rough guide to uh, Asha Boshley. Sounds good to me, man. Okay. <laughs> I don't know how to say the, it either. 
didn't sound good to me, but <laughs> yeah, it, it's uh, another an Indian singer, film star. Um, yeah, probably I've, an I've, icon in India, and, and you know something new for both of us. So. Well, you know, I've actually heard some tracks uh, from her before, and she is she's like a legend in India and in a in the whole Bollywood. Uh, okay. music and she actually never uh really was on screen she always sang behind the screen. she sang the tracks and then you know they would throw throw up some beautiful indian girl to, to lip sync over it <laughs> um and uh she sang on like almost a thousand films i think wow uh, yeah yeah so she's kind of like the voice of bollywood um so i'm i'm you know, uh, I can't wait to get into that. I think I think it's gonna be awesome. So yeah, and that that's that's funny. You should mention that. So many of of the Bollywood films come off as if it's the same person singing on on every one. And yeah. I, I used to think to myself, is that just me? I, I didn't want to <laughs> think I was being prejudiced. You know, and thinking is it's it's like the it's like the same voice, and maybe it's her. You know, no, there's a, there's a lot of truth to that. It, it in many of the big Bollywood films, it is the same wow. person. Well, so. now, now I'm, I'm 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 even more excited because I mean, <laughs> when, whenever you hear like the the soundtracks to a lot of a lot of those films, I I used to literally would think that uh, uh, a local radio station here, uh, well Rice Rice University's radio station, uh, KTRU, used to play Indian music on Saturdays. And um, I think they may still do. Uh, and, and when I would listen, I was just thinking, you know, man, that lady's voice sucks. She's like singing on every song, you know. <laughs> <laughs> so, you know, that that's very likely. It, it could have been her on quite a bit of that. So, yeah. You know. Yeah. I think you're right, man. Good ears. Um, so, yeah, that's what we have coming up next week. And, uh, yeah, unless you have anything else to to say. No. Uh been good uh enjoying uh the the time we we spend doing this um oh um wanted to bring up you 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 said you had a trip to chicago uh this week uh i did and uh you had maybe had some good news come out of that well we'll see it's too early to say anything okay well that's fine it really is too early to say anything but then um, we'll just we'll we'll just hold back on that but you still just a good trip to chicago last week good trip to chicago yeah definitely okay so um my first my first trip to chicago all right and um we we went through downtown chicago chicago is man you know my 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 uh experience with downtowns is like you know houston obviously or dallas or, or or something like this um and you know i've been to new york and la and all that stuff but uh, I guess I was expecting more of like a downtown like Dallas or something in Chicago. <laughs> mm-hmm. No, Chicago downtown is incredible. It's <laughs> it's for one, it's huge. It is. I mean, you take Houston's downtown and times it by ten. Wow. And and it also the other cool thing is you know there of course there's all the modern buildings and stuff down there, but also there's all the old buildings and all in like pristine condition. So you can mm-hmm. drive around Chicago and you can really see that old Chicago of like Al Capone and all that stuff. Just It's just everywhere. It's really <laughs> cool. Really cool city. But anyway, um, yeah, so uh, maybe we'll have some news uh, coming up about that. I don't know. But if we do, I'll, I'll mention it. And cool uh, yeah, man. So uh, we are going to leave you guys. 
and uh, we'll see everybody next week. All right. Bye, everybody. Take care. That show was delightful. <laughs> no, no, it was brilliant. No, 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 no. There is no word to describe its perfection. So I'm forced to make one up. And I'm going to do so right now. Scrum-trilescent. <laughs>